Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for your, your love and your grace and your mercy. And Lord, we just thank you for the peace that we have, knowing you as our Lord and Savior, knowing and trusting in you, like we sang about this morning, Lord. When there's issues, we can trust in you, knowing that you will take care of us. Lord, we just pray now for our brother Hugo as he presents your word. Lord, we pray that you will give the message through him of what you want us to learn this morning. And Lord, we also pray for the choir as they minister to us through song. Lord, we just thank you so much for being our Lord and Savior. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.
It's good to know that our Redeemer lives. Just, just wonderful. And we just thank the choir for that wonderful song. Well, good morning. <coughs> and, <coughs> and greetings in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So good to be with you again. Well, because I've been more and more aware in this past month or two of so many Christian brothers and sisters stricken with depression, that I'd like to focus our meditation on the little book of, of Philippians. For anyone who experiences a lot of stress, for anyone who feels they are kind of stuck in their present circumstances, for anyone who feels that things just don't seem to work out for them, so much so that it's taking the joy out of living, uh, I trust this message will be for you. And our subject this morning is the joy that overcomes the pits of life. You know about the pits, don't you? I sure do. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, and we'll read the first 11 verses. <clears throat> Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus, who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this, this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And may God bless the reading of his word to us. It seems to me like there's not a great deal of joy in our world. We all remember 9-11. We're still thinking of the war in Iraq. In the past few weeks, we've had three missionaries uh, martyred. There are stress factors everywhere, from our national government down to what used to be so stable, the family. We seem to be a society that's in the pits. Perhaps you remember 
the comic Alan King's remark to President Jimmy Carter, why is he always smiling? Doesn't anyone tell him what's going on? <laughs> or what H.L. Mencken said, some people are so pessimistic that when they smell the flowers, they immediately look for a coffin. <laughs> the little book of Philippians which we want to explore today pictures for a man who has actually found peace. Peace and joy in prison. Peace and joy while being guarded by Roman soldiers. This little book of Philippians actually speaks of a peace which surpasses all understanding. It's a peace that cannot be explained. It's a peace that boggles the mind. When we only see Paul's chains, when we only see his prison, when we only see his fate in the hands of an emperor, Emperor Nero, We'd say, Paul, aren't you a little bit crazy talking about peace? Don't you understand that your life is on the line? Don't you understand that some are preaching, thinking that they might add to your problem in prison? And you're joyful? Well, actually, Paul had discovered something that he wants to share with all of us. He has earthed one of life's most wanted treasures. And you might want to turn to this. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 12. The New International Version puts the last couple of words this way. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, I have learned the secret. The, the Greek text reads, I have been initiated into the secret of being content. Wow. Wow. Is it possible to be joyful if you are unjustly accused? or made fun of, or abused, or tormented? Is it possible to be joyful and at the same time experience the antagonism of a, work, of a workplace that rejects God? Or when you're going through a difficult experience, the world says, no, you can't have peace. It's entirely unrealistic. Well, when Paul talks about joy, it's not empty words. It's not a smokescreen. It's not a lot of cutesy sayings. You know what I mean about cutesy sayings? Uh, I remember someone used to say, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. That's kind of cute, you know. Or the tough go shopping, you know. It's, uh, these are these kind of cutesy sayings that don't really have a whole lot of substance to them. 
You know, when we read the little book of Philippians, it's easy to overlook the fact that Paul actually wrote this letter from prison. Because the tone is so positive, and the subject is so outgoing and so encouraging. Now, if Paul discovered the kind of secret that resulted in his being content, then folks, I want to know about it. Don't you want to know the secret of being content in any and every situation? Don't you want to know that secret? Well, that's what Paul says. I know the secret, and I want to discover what that secret is. Even in a prison. Because we all have prisons of one kind or another. Some people feel stuck in their job. Some people feel stuck in their aloneness. We know a lady who is very stuck in her aloneness, very stuck. Some women feel stuck behind a kitchen sink, as well as several demanding children. Some people feel stuck with limited finances. Some people feel stuck in their marriages. When you feel stuck in these ways and you come to chapter 1 and verse 2, people have a tendency to read instead of grace and peace, they read guilt and pressure. We don't read it the way it's written. Is there a way to be happy in our prisons? Drawing from this little book, we discover that our prisons often don't change. They remain the same and they continue. But the person changes. And he see, sees things so differently. And that's much more important. Sometimes we pray, Oh, Lord, deliver me from this prison. When perhaps a more appropriate prayer might be, Oh, Lord, help me to discover the secret of being content. Sometimes we find that we can have a greater impact on our prison than the prison will have on us. Well, this morning I'd like to think of three ways to strengthen our response to the pits of life. First, happy memories were particularly helpful for Paul's ability to rejoice in prison. He didn't sit in prison feeling sorry for himself. And notice verse 3. I particularly noted that uh, D Dean, in the letter that was read, uh, quoted this verse. I thank my God every time I remember you. Now, what was it that Paul was remembering? He remembered a number of things, I believe. He remembered that it was the Holy Spirit who had directed him to be in the city of Philippi in the first place. He wanted to go elsewhere, but God had other plans for him. Paul remembered that there was a girl that had a demon problem and that she was delivered. He remembered that. He remembered with joy the earthquake and the jailer who had called out, what must I do to be saved? I think he remembered that. 
He remembered Lydia, the business lady whom he had met at a women's prayer meeting at the Riverside. And as Paul thought of these people and more, one thing filled his mind, I believe. God had been at work in those days at Philippi. God had worked in spite of his being beaten with rods and thrown into an inner prison and his feet placed in the stocks. God had done such a great work in the lives of the Philippians that they had rejoiced with Paul in his evangelism from the very first day, and they had kept it up until now, and Paul rejoiced. Wouldn't you? Sometimes, I think the devil troubles me, and... Uh, and I sometimes feel sorry for myself. I feel sorry that I lost my pension when I went into the Lord's work full time 35 years ago. I lost what people call financial security, whatever that is, and a good retirement during the golden years. But then I remember and here's the secret. And then I remember some people whose lives were dramatically changed at the Bible school where I taught. And we hear regularly from our former students. For example, one from Burundi, another one from Nepal and Kathmandu, another from Hungary and Budapest. There was one of my students who joined me in a... Uh, study at 5.30 in the morning on a study uh, centering on discipleship. His first year after Bible school, he led 98 people to the Lord. Wouldn't you rejoice? Several years ago, Kathleen and I were sent tickets to go to Puerto Rico by a young couple. She was a doctor who had taught at the medical school in San Francisco and had recently come to know the Lord in the church where I was serving. He was an environmental specialist with projects around the world. The evening we arrived in Puerto Rico, Jim and I stayed up several hours discussing his questions from the Gospel of Luke. He had written them down in one of those big yellow tablets, you know. And later that week, we went out for dinner, and Jim brought his Bible to the dinner table. Unsaved people aren't supposed to do that, you know. They're supposed to just go along, and you're supposed to be the one that leads the way. But he brought his Bible. And after dinner, we sat down in the lounge there in the uh, dining room area where Jim came into the joy <coughs> of salvation. And we rejoiced. The first thing he wanted to do was to go and tell his wife that he had come to know the Lord. And I'm grateful to be able to see Jim and Carolyn from time to time. They now live in Davis here in California. 
not really too far away. And then there are many more memories. I thank my God every time I remember you. Every time I have these memories and they come to my mind every now and then, my circumstances aren't any different. But my heart rejoices. I'm content and I thank God. When you find yourself down in the dumps because of your prison, it's a good thing to remember what God has done in your life. What makes a happy prisoner? It's the person who recalls God's work in his life. You know, like the song says, count your blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. A second way to strengthen our response to the life is to have a joyful outlook with regard to the future. And I want you to look at verse 6. <clears throat> verse 6 in my translation reads, this is chapter 1, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And this kind of confidence makes happy prisoners. I really believe that the Lord from heaven is at work in a tiny, little, insignificant life like mine. When I think that, it's either arrogant, prideful, wishful thinking, or it's a wonderful, awesome truth from the Bible. And as a convinced Christian, I rule out the wishful thinking and rejoice in its happy truth. Do all of you believe in this verse? If you do, would you repeat it after me? Being confident of this, that he who began, and I'm going to change a word here, listen, a good work in me will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God's work of change and skill and genius has begun in our lives. You know, our text says God began a good work in us. There are two Greek words translated good in the New Testament. One is kalos, K-A-L-O-S, and it means morally good, morally good. He or she does not engage in questionable activities. He or she is good. They don't do certain things because they're not good, they're bad. But she is good. He is good. The other word is agathos. A-G-A-T-H-O-S. And it carries the idea of something beautiful. Sometimes we look at a painting and say, boy, that's really good. We mean it's a quality work and that it's also beautiful. As a freshman in college, I was part of a group of Christians who belonged to a group called the Agatheans. 
It's the first Greek word that I memorized. What word do you think the Apostle Paul used in verse 6? Well, it's agathos. God has begun a beautiful work in you and me. And it's going to be a masterpiece because he's the one that's doing it. And he's going to bring it to completion when Christ returns for his church. You know, I already see a beautiful, a number of beautiful people here at San Ramon as I just look at your faces. But as Ronald Reagan used to say, you ain't seen nothing yet. You know, you ain't seen nothing yet. God has started his work in us and he contributes to that, he continues that work and he continues in order to complete it. And do you suppose that he sometimes even uses our stuck circumstances as he completes the work in us, as he goes on that work in completion? The work begun in the jailer in Paul's prison experience in Philippi, when the jailer cried out, what must I do to be saved? And Paul's response, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your house. When the jailer believed, the work of transformation began. But that was only the beginning. For what Christ started in that jailer, he continued because it was going to be a good work, a beautiful work. It's God's good work. And that's how to be happy in prison. It's being confident, confident that God has begun a beautiful work in you and he's going to continue it until the return of Christ. Now, if you believe that, that's a secret of being happy, being content. The third way to strengthen, and this will be the last for this morning, our response to the bit pits of life is to have happy prayers. Verse 4. Paul's prayers were not whining prayers. As, <clears throat> Lord, you know, I've been trying to serve you, and is this what I get? I remember some years ago, we were picking up children to bring them to a children's meeting. And I think I had eight or ten kids in the car, too many for the station wagon I had. But anyway, I was going up this hill, and then we we're going to go down the hill, and I picked up some speed. And uh, one of those cars with those flashing pretty lights, you know, pulled me over. And I deserved it. I was going too fast. But I said, oh, Lord, I was trying to serve you. And this is what I get, you know. You get a ticket. Well, Paul's prayers were not whining, complaining prayers. Paul's prayers were not prayers that begged God to be released from prison. His prayers were not self-centered. Paul prayed for these 
dear Philippian Christians, he prayed for others. And here's some, a little instruction in praying, which uh, sometimes I have missed this. What did Paul pray for when he prayed? Notice verses 9 and 10. He prayed that the love of the Philippian Christians would abound more and more. And I found this prayer very interesting. Love is not intended to stay at a certain medium kind of level or even a higher level. It is intended to grow and grow and grow and keep on growing and keep on growing. It's intended to abound more and more. And then I discovered something else about this verse, about the word abound. It's a, it's a word that I recently discovered. It means an excess and a fullness that overflows its boundaries. It means that the given space is unable to contain it. Are you with me? And the New Testament is full of this word. When the 5,000 were miraculously fed and satisfied, there were 12 baskets of broken pieces left over. The word left over is the same word we have here translated abound. Left over, there's lots. There's more. God always is a God of excess, it seems, of, of plenty. He doesn't hold back. The people in that story, the feeding of the 5,000, were not only filled, there was an abundance left over. Jesus not only gives us life, he gives us abundant life. He gives such a fullness that there is an overflow. And speaking of God's grace, in Romans chapter 5 and verse 20, we read this. Where sin increased, God, grace increased all the more. Increase all the more is that word abound, but with the word hyper in front of it. It's not just abounding. It's super abounding. It's hyper super abundance. And if that doesn't excite you about the grace of God, I don't know what will. When God in his grace saved us, he didn't do it just, just enough grace, just to get you by. He gave us a superabounding grace. I love that hymn. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Well, back to verse 9. This is my prayer for you, that your love may abound more and more. How much should we love? When we have expressed our love to our friends, to the people close to us, if we have abounding love, our love is going to overflow to people who are difficult to love, to people who are yucky. You know yucky people, right? They're persons who are different and who disagree with us. You a loving person? 
I pray your love may abound more and more. Isn't that a good prayer to pray for each one? For our friends, for our wives, for our husbands, for our children, that their love may abound more and more. Super abound. Overflowing. And there are at least two parts to loving. Besides having love that abounds, Paul adds in verse 9, our love is to abound in knowledge and depth of insight. To love with knowledge means that you don't allow your head, your heart to rule your head. To love with insight means your love is not a cold, calculating, measured love, a head love. A permissive parent that says yes to every demand of a child may not be very loving at all because they are not loving with knowledge and depth of insight. Little difference there. As a minister of the gospel who never mentions sin, that person may not be expressing very much love at all. I need to tell people that they're sinners. and that we are unable to reform ourselves. We are unable to come into the presence of God. And only God, by his grace, can reach down and save a guilty sinner. And we are all guilty. We have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It would not be loving for me not to include that this morning. And I need to say this too. If you leave this place without having received Christ as your Savior, he will still be in your sins and therefore in danger of going to hell. And I believe it's loving for me to say that. Why does the Apostle Paul pray for knowledge and insight in loving? Notice verse 10. My, my verse starts with, so that. Why love? So that you may approve to be able to discern what is best or excellent. In other words, don't go for the mediocre. Go for the best. Go for the best. Have you ever prayed for someone specifically this way and then seen that person's love abound? The result is usually joy and happiness. And I'm thinking of a person in the Middle East, a believer, but who has a problem, or had a problem, let me put it out, past tense, who had a problem with anger. And I believe that abounding love displaced his anger and his temper. So much so that this man wrote a letter to all of his friends telling them what God had done in his life. Formerly an angry man, 
now a loving man. That's the grace of God. In closing, let me just review the three ways we talked about strengthening our responses to life in the pits. As Paul puts it, the secret of being content. Remember those happy memories of the Lord's work in your life. Recall the promise of God with regard to the future. What God has started in you, he's going to finish until Jesus comes again and no earthly prison is going to stop what God has started. Lastly, have a happy prayer life that focuses on the development of the prime virtue, love. And the result will be joy, regardless of the difficulties or circumstances. Dear friends, may the Lord bless you in each of these three ways. And may we all learn experientially the secret of being content. May we pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for these words penned by the Apostle Paul, that he had learned the secret of being content. He had learned to abound with much, and he learned to abound with little. And so we're very grateful. Thank you for the reminders that this wonderful little book gives us with regard to being content. And Father, we do pray for each person here today, that each person, Lord, will know that secret, will enter into that secret, and rejoice in that secret, and rejoice in the one who gives grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Dismiss us with your blessing. Go with us throughout the day, as you had promised. For we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.